from his studios in New York. It's time for Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora, where sports meets life. Here's your host, Dan Tortora. Welcome here to Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora on WakeUpCallDT.com, your one-stop sports shop, and on MixLR.com backslash WakeUpCallDT. Happy to be here with you this morning and appreciate you taking the time to listen in to Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora. Boy, do we have an amazing conversation to have. A lot going on here, folks. A lot to talk about, a lot to discuss. The football world... And my connection to it, things have been awesome. And I just got a message here. Let's see what we got. From Johnny said, how do you feel? I feel amazing. And we're going to discuss why that is in, in, in just a little bit here. But welcome to the show. Welcome to the first full, or the second full week, I should say, of January. And if you start on a Monday. So welcome, welcome, welcome to the show here on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora on MixLR.com backslash WakeUpCallDT. And on the homepage of WakeUpCallDT.com, you can also get it, <coughs> get the show there as well. So, a good morning to you, a good morning to all, and thank you, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in to the broadcast and being a part of the show. I truly appreciate it. The opportunity to speak with you every Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And in today's morning menu, pr proudly presented by the Market Diner on 2100 Park Street in Syracuse, New York, in the regional market, across from Destiny, USA. It is the home of the Dan Tortora Special. Belgian waffle cut in half, bacon, egg, and cheese inside. At least 70 of them sold per week. Almost 100 of these sandwiches sold per week because you are amazing. So get yourself over to the Market Dinah and try that out and get yourself some. We have a lot to talk about on today's show. Dan Pearson is going to be joining me in just a little bit. Dan and I worked together when I was covering the UFL, United Football League's Florida Tuskers, that featured John, uh, featured John Gruden's brother, Jay Gruden, Dominique Rhodes, who won a Super Bowl of the Colts, also featured guys like Brooks Bollinger and Avion Kaysen and you know, guys that had played in the NFL, and it connected me with the man they call Joe Theismann. So, Dan Pierce is going to be joining the show because he's had a lot to say about UCF. And if UCF should call themselves national champions, if this is something that he agrees or disagrees with. So we're going to get into that, and then Papa, you know, Papa Joe, he's going to be joining the show in just a little bit, and we're going to be discussing Georgia versus Alabama in the national championship game. Why? Because Papa Joe and I have one of the biggest wagers in histories on this. Vegas cannot touch the wager that I have with Papa Joe, and that is for some good old Chick-fil-A. If I win, I chose Georgia. He buys me Chick-fil-A. If Alabama wins, I buy him Chick-fil-A. Either way, the both of us win, so that's the beauty of Chick-fil-A. So we're going to discuss the Georgia-Alabama National Championship game coming up tonight, January 8th, in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, where I was proud to see Alabama take on Florida State earlier on in the season to start off the Chick-fil-A kickoff game. 
And do I have some tide to roll, Johnny said. I do not have any tide to roll. I have a bulldog to let loose. So with that being said, we're going to jump into the show here uh, in just a second with some college football talk. In the second hour, we're going to talk about the wild card. I'm going to give you my thoughts on New Orleans' win over Carolina, Atlanta's win over the Rams, Tennessee's win over Kansas City. And then we're going to round out the show. I'm saving the best for last. We're going to round out the show with my conversation, my thoughts, my feelings, my everything that has to do with being on site at Everbank Field yesterday to cover my first ever playoff game in my history as a broadcaster. Almost 15 years doing this thing, and I got to be in my first ever NFL playoff. And it was with a team that I have followed since they entered in 1995. 23 years ago. And on top of all of that, it's a team that I have been supporting and telling you was going to get better. I said the last four years, just watch. Just watch. Just watch. Especially the last three years, just give them some time. And there's some vindication to what happened this weekend. There's some vindication to being that person that people are like, oh, you cover the Jaguars? Why? <laughs> and then and then getting to the point that we're at today. And the, uh, the amount of messages I received yesterday about covering the Jaguars was insane from all over the place. So we're going to discuss, I'm saving the best for last, with no offense to anything else we talk about, we're going to, but we're going to, when I talk about the Jaguars later on here in the show, we're going to have some fun with that. So, with that all being said, and knowing that I got a lot to say with the Jaguars coming up in just a little bit, I'm very excited to welcome you to the show. Uh, Johnny said, that defense is young, fast, and hungry. That keeps They keep that up. They're going to remind me of the early 2000 Baltimore Ravens. Scary defense. Do you have some tie? Oh, and then he said, do you have some tie to roll? I agree with your defensive thoughts, Johnny. Just writing it back to him here on the live feed. And if you're wondering what the heck I'm doing, what is this live feed you speak of, Daniel? It is the MixLR.com backslash DT live feed. And if you become a member of MixLR.com backslash DT, then you can chat with me in the live chat room. Anytime the show goes live. So as soon as the show goes live and you're listening, the chat room opens. And you can type to me and we can talk. So make sure you become a member. Don't just listen. Listen and become a member so that you can connect with the show. Write messages in. And on top of all of that, you'll be emailed when the show goes live. So all you have to do to listen once you're a member is open your email and click on Listen Live. That's all you have to do. It's literally that easy. So pretty awesome here. So send that off to Johnny. Uh, EctoCore said, Jax D was part of the reason why I finished my regular season fantasy in first place. So I'll send that back to EctoCore's. Picking the Jaguars defense helped him out to finish first place in fantasy. And, and he played in the wake of call fantasy football challenge. So... Shout out to you, Ecto Course, for doing that. Johnny did that as well. Jimmy, everybody. So it is a it's an amazing morning. Uh, it's an it's it's amazing 
how I got down to Jacksonville. It's amazing how I even got here yesterday. So we'll discuss that all in just a little bit. I have so many thoughts and feelings running through right now. It's 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 amazing. Aaron said, congrats on my experience and the Jaguars winning the game. Thank you, Aaron. Got to hang out. Aaron, you know, and, and I got to put this out on Johnny. Aaron's fun people. So we got to all get together. That's the thing. Listenership. If you're in the Fantasy Football League, the Flag Football League, you listen to the show, whatever it may be, listen, hanging out, having a good time, going out and watching a game, that's what I'm about. So let's go do that. Let's make it happen. And uh, Aaron, anytime you want to get your boy Johnny to watch the movie It with company, let a brother know. So with that being said, let's jump into the first thing here. Dan Pearson's going to join me in just a few. But just to preface this, we're going to be discussing UCF in the sense of their season as a whole. Uh, their AAC championship game, which is the first time they made it to the championship, first time they won it in the young three-year history of the American Athletic Championship game. So we'll discuss that game. We'll discuss their win over Auburn of the SEC. We will also take a look at if UCF should be called national champions and who else has done that in the past. You'll be surprised to find out who has deemed themselves a national champion without getting the official designation from the NCAA. Uh, UCF celebrating at Disney yesterday. They had a parade at Disney. UCF paying former staff bonuses that were leaving and the and UCF hanging a banner in their Spectrum Stadium. So <clears throat> there's a lot to say about everything that UCF did and whether or not you agree or disagree with the fact that UCF has deemed themselves national champions and everything that they've done because of that. Now they didn't just the thing is they didn't just call themselves national champions. They paid their coaching staff like they were national champions. You got to think about it like this. They didn't just say, "You know what? We're going to just say that this is us." We're going to say that we're national champions. We're just going to say that we won it all. And that's it. It's just going to be a designation. We're going to write it in our history books and that's it. They literally put their money where their mouth is and paid their coaches like they were national champions. It's insane. It's insane. Because, you know, the thing is, I feel like, you know, people would say, yeah, yeah, you know what, we're national champions, we're going to hang a banner, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. They actually gave bonuses. UCF lost money. They could have kept on this money. They let go of this money to thank their staff. I mean, they did everything that a national champion is supposed to do. So we'll talk about that side of it, that they, they didn't just say they're national champions. They celebrated their national champion season, in their opinion, by doing right by their coaches. So we're going to discuss that all in just a little bit here. After we take this step aside on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora, on WakeUpCallDT.com, your one-stop sports shop, and on MixLR.com backslash WakeUpCallDT. So we will get into UCF and the conversation with Dan Pearson in just a minute. 
This is a wake-up call, Fast Break. Carvel DeWitt, it's what happy tastes like. Do you know why? Because we make ice cream. Creamy, rich, flavorful ice cream. Not yogurt or ice milk like some of our competitors. Ice cream. Fresh, by hand, daily. For the calorie conscious, we have something new for you. Our new Carvelite. Same great flavor, creaminess, and texture of our regular ice cream with only 35 calories an ounce. So whether you want an ice cream cake, flying saucer, dasher, carvalanche, hard or soft ice cream, we will satisfy your craving with our fresh, handmade, regular, or new Carvelite ice cream. Carvel DeWitt. It's what happy tastes like. Clothing that will change with you without you having to change. DrysigLady.com, D-R-E-I-S-S-I-G, Lady.com. With the bamboo line, relaxed fit clothing, as well as the athletic fit clothing, DrysigLady.com is fit for any woman, any time of the day, anywhere. Whatever you're doing, whatever your day commands of you, Command yourself to feel comfortable in Dreisig Lady Apparel. D-R-E-I-S-S-I-G Lady.com. For all the women out there, feel good in what you're wearing. And don't feel like you have to constantly change throughout the day. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a business owner, going for a jog, going for a meeting, or just relaxing at home, DrysigLady.com is the right fit for you. D-R-E-I-S-S-I-G Lady.com This is Lawrence Papaleo, licensed real estate salesperson for Gilbo Realty. Call our home office at 315-752-9513 or better yet, call or text me directly at 315-748-2524. Let me ask you a question, Lawrence. If I needed you to help me buy a house, find the right place, could you help me do that? Joe, I'll help you find your dream home. You don't ever say my name on the radio, never. If I needed to sell a house, could you help me go about that the right way? Yes, yes I can. How do they get a hold of you? Call me directly at 315-748-2524. But you also do the commercial property. So if I got a business, couple businesses, got to take one here, move it over there, do this, do that. Are you going to help me buy and sell my commercial property also? Yes, sir. I like that. I like that. What's my name again? I have no idea. Absolutely. But they need to know your name, so give it one more time. This is Lawrence Papaleo, licensed real estate salesperson for Gilbo Realty. My phone number is 315-748-2524. Why don't you tell them your name one more time and that number so we can jot it down. This is Lawrence Papaleo. Call me or text me directly at 315-748-2524. The Market Diner prides itself on bringing the local community fresh ingredients that are better than going elsewhere. Open for breakfast, served all day, lunch and dinner with daily specials. The Market Diner is located at the Regional Market on Park Street, right across from Destiny, USA. For takeout, call 315-474-5247. The Market Diner. Local. Fresh. Better. Welcome back here to Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora on WakeUpCallDT.com, your one-stop sports shop, and on MixLR.com backslash WakeUpCallDT. We live stream to you from anywhere in the world, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, and make sure that you are tuning in, MixLR.com backslash WakeUpCallDT. I want to thank everybody that has been a part of the show. So much to talk about today, from UCF to the National Championship between Alabama and Georgia to the NFL's wild card round to my experience 
covering the Jaguars game at Everbank Field on Sunday, January 7th. So a lot to discuss. Here to start things off with us is Dan Pearson, retired sports. I mean, when, when I look at Dan, I, I want to call you a retired sports enthusiast, retired sports publicist, retired sports everything. Because, I mean, when I met Dan Pearson, he was helping out the United Football League, and he was working very closely with the Florida Tuskers, and every, I mean, anything that was anything about the team and had to do with the team and go through the team, Dan was a part of, to, you know, the people that we got to be around that came in with the Florida Tuskers, the Joe Theismans, the John Grudens, the Jay Grudens, the Doug Fluties, and the Dominique Rhodes, and the list goes on and on and on. So, to me, it was, it was an honor to cover that team, and through that, to meet Dan Pearson. And with all the work that he has done from Florida State, with college football in general, with the Tuskers, and then in and out of the sport of football with other sports around the country, it really is nice for me to have that blast from the past connection and bring him back to the show to discuss something that I've been very passionate about here on the broadcast. So with that being said, Dan, how are you doing this morning? Pretty good, Dan. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And and Dan, you know, to, to jump right into it, I'm going to read, a if you, if you don't mind me here doing so, I'm going to read a, a post that you put up on January 4th on the UCF Knights National Champion designation. And you said, so now I'm reading a ton of posts saying UCF has taken this national championship thing quote-unquote too far, and they are quote-unquote crossing the line. Bad enough hearing it from the elitist SEC fans, but now quote-unquote quote-unquote respected columnists and journalists are joining in. Give it a rest, you arrogant, and I'll blank that out. First you make sure the te- teams like UCF never get invited to the party, and now you want to dictate <clears throat> how much fun they're allowed to have. If 20th ranked and two loss Alabama can claim a national championship in 1941, and 9th in the AP and two loss 1967, Tennessee can claim a national championship. Why can't 13 and 0 UCF also claim it? Frankly, from a PR standpoint, what they're doing is actually brilliant, and I'm buying me some national championship swag. And then it says cockroaches stay in your place. So. After reading this, because I had followed some of the stuff you had written about UCF, this was the one where I really said, you know what, I want to have Dan on the show because there's a lot of passion with what he's feeling with this. And you brought up some good points on teams that have decided that they're national champions and nobody stopped them. So to go off of of what you said on January 4th, let's kind of just branch out from there and, and the thoughts that you're having about the people that say that UCF has no business and no right to call themselves a national champion. Well, Dan, I think it's it's really on, on a whole 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 lot of different angles you can look at this thing. And the, and the first thing I I want to say, and I think it's it's important to note this: I'm not a UCF fan. Uh, my son went to University of South Florida. Uh, they're obviously bitter rivals. I worked at Florida State. I have I have no uh, no dog in this fight at all. But it, it just bothers me that a again. This was a team that went 13-0. They beat a team in the Peach Bowl that five weeks ago they were saying was the second-best team in the country. And now that now these uh, SEC fans and and, uh, and these college football elitists, and, and that's what they are, they just feel like that if you're not in the Power Five, you're not very good. But the fact of the matter is that if you really look at any team in the uh, – excuse me, any league in the Power Five, 
Now, I'll point to the fact that uh, uh, Illinois is a Big Ten team, and they came down to South Florida and got beat by what should have been 50 points. So how good are they really? And I, I think that uh, uh, when a team goes 13-0, and that they, they're obviously upset that they weren't invited to the party. They have every reason and right to feel that way. And uh, and I think the other part of this whole thing is, is the bottom line is that everybody keeps saying, oh, you got to accept that you're not the national championship. And my question is, why? There has never been an NCAA Division One national football champion. It's always been determined by polls. And uh, even the latest thing with the BCS and now the CFP, they're invitationals. You have a bunch of people. There is no set criteria for who gets into that four-team tournament now. You have a bunch of people sitting around, and in their opinion, these are the four best teams. But that's all it is, is an opinion. Until there is a set format where if you do this, this, and this, you're guaranteed a spot in that playoff, then it's not a playoff. It's an invitational. And going off of, of what you said, speaking here with Dan Pearson, you know, to, to take a look at what – has been going on with the BCS, with the college football playoff. Like you said, it's an invitational because <clears throat> they essentially decide whether it was the BCS national championship game or the four-team college football playoff. There's a committee that sits and says, we believe that these are the four teams that should be in here. We believe that these are the four teams that should play. Now, sometimes <clears throat> there's undefeated teams like an Alabama or like a Clemson who get put in the college football playoff, but other undefeated teams, if it's a BYU or a Boise State or whatever it may be, they don't make it in because the committee says, well, they didn't play tough enough teams, a tough enough schedule, tough enough non-conference, and they're not in a tough enough conference to be considered to be in the college football playoff. Yet, if you're undefeated and you're in the Power Five, you're pretty much guaranteed. In the case of UCF, they don't play in an easy conference. I've covered this conference since it's since it's literally like that in that institution before the logo, before everything. I've been talking with Mike Oresco, their commissioner, and to follow this conference and to look at the Memphises and the South Floridas and the UCFs and the Houstons and the Navies and so on and so forth. The American Athletic is not one of those easy team easy conferences to bowl over. And seven out of twelve of their teams, more than half of their teams went to a bowl game this season and ended with a winning record in the bowl season. So to to see UCF coming in and say, well, they're one of the undefeateds. Let's say Clemson was undefeated. Let's say Wisconsin's undefeated. Alabama's undefeated. So they say, we got to pick and choose our undefeateds. This year, there was only one undefeated team. Only one. And for me, if there's only one out of 130, then they've obviously deserved the right to show why they're undefeated and why they're the team. Things that have they haven't been given credit for is the fact that they had to literally weather a storm with Hurricane Irma, had to look at the fact that they lost a game during the regular season, could have lost two games, and had to play 11 straight weeks because of Hurricane Irma. So not only were they undefeated, they had to deal with the elements, they had to deal with the team and trying to figure out can people go back and see their family? Are they going to stay with us? How are we going to work this out? How many practice days will we have? And then we have to run a gamut and play 11 straight weeks without a break. And they still made no excuses, made it through it all, and they're the only undefeated team in the country going into this bowl season. So in my opinion, if if the committee, like you said, if it's an invitational, 
and they can decide who makes it. They Every team that they chose to make it had a blemish, except for Central Florida. So this season of all seasons, I think they should have gotten a crack at it. Well, I don't think there's any question about that. And then I think there's the the other notion, too, though, is, is simply this. And, and uh, they'll deny it's true. They'll say it's not true. But it's absolutely true. The uh, CFP playoffs are basically run by the Power Five Conference athletic directors with the support of their presidents. And as much as they want to tell you that they're going to be fair about this, the bottom line is they are never, ever going to let a non-Power Five team into that Final Four. Uh, It's just not going to happen. Now, I mean, because of that and the way it's set up, and and also let's talk for for a second about that that whole argument about the non-Power Five teams signed into the system. They did. And they're, they're tossed a few peanuts because of that. They get to share in that. They're given access to one of the uh, 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 six, six uh, big bowl games and everything else, which is all fine and good. But the bottom line is that unless this stuff starts getting talked about, nothing is ever going to change. Now, here's the only change I think will happen. If, uh, if teams like USF and UCF and a few other ones keep putting together these seasons, I think eventually that there may be conference realignment and those two teams are going to be plucked by one of the major conferences. And honestly, they should be because it's a heck of a TV market. I think they bring something to the table. So, uh, you know, I think that's going to be, uh, I think that's going to be UCS best, best chance of any type of, uh, any type of, um, uh, satisfaction in this that if indeed they do get into a Big 12 or something but by the same token you know I think what they're doing now is brilliant because they got people talking about it and uh, that's one of the things that you look back and that's why I said it was a brilliant PR move what is happening right now we are still we're moving into the to the uh, uh, CFP National Championship game tonight and people are still talking about CCF a lot of it negative, but they're still talking about it. So I think there's there's something good coming out of it. Yeah, and when when we see, you know, like you said, the only way for for you know UCF to really get to where they want to get to is to have more conference realignment. Isn't it time to take a step back and look at the Pac-12? And say, you know, yeah, they have they have some good teams and they do some good things, but they didn't have great seasons. Oregon didn't have a great season. USC didn't have a great season. UCLA didn't have a great season. And USC got embarrassed in their bowl game. To, and UCLA got beat by Memphis of the American Athletic to look at the Big 12 and say, okay, outside Oklahoma, who cares? So the well, American... There is, there, there, there is always a danger, though, of taking one year and saying, well, that conference isn't very good and maybe the AAC is better. Uh, I, I think uh, what, what really happens here, though, Dan, and, 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 and when you really look at it, you, it's not that really hard to figure out. You have five conferences controlling all the money in college football. They're the ones with the TV contracts. That's not going to change. And uh, because of that, though, what they're doing is they're excluding everybody else from being in the party. And, uh, you know, you can argue about the fairness of it, but you can also say life isn't fair. 
And and, and I think uh, I think that's going to be uh, that's going to be the redemption for, for for UCF and hopefully USF too. But that's going to take some time to happen. Now, uh, I don't think any of us know when conference realignment is going to happen again. I, I do see one conference, the Big 12, with only 10 teams in it. It would make more sense to have 12 for scheduling and everything else and also to make that uh, championship game they want that they had for the first time this year uh, um, make a little bit more sense on how they set it up and play it. Well, and, and going off of what you said, you know, and, and, and I agree, you know, that obviously this year maybe the Pac-12, Big 12 aren't strong, but you can't just base it on one year. With the American Athletic trying to ramp up and do what they have done, though, over their very, very, you know, short time in existence, do we not branch this out and say, okay, let's look at a Power Six if these coaches are being poached every single year from the American to go to the Power Five conferences, if schools like UCF and USF and Memphis and so on and so forth and Houston are being looked at by other conferences to try and take in realignment, then instead of doing all of that, why can't they branch out, open up and say, okay, you know what, it's not a Power Five, it's a Power Six. We need to open the door to the American Athletic, take them out of the group of five, because I believe that they are above that, well above. I feel like there's a Power Five, there's the American, and then there's everybody else. So if they engulf them and take them in and try to work in autonomy for them as well, then is that not a victory for the American? Because for me, the American's going to continue to lose and just bleed out if if the system stays power five. They're going to keep losing coaches. They're going to keep losing schools and institutions. And they're going to have to literally continue to do what they did when the Big East fell apart. So in my opinion... For the care and concern of the American, do they not just say, you know what, instead of doing all this stuff, just let us be a part of the party. Let's talk to the institutions about doing what we need to do to be autonomous, and let's go that route. Well, yes, but the, the only reason that that's not as simple as it sounds, even though, again, we can argue the merits about whether they're a, they are as good as any of the other power fives, which they very well might be, uh, the problem that comes in though is each individual conference negotiated their own TV contracts and unless somebody unless a, a major network is willing to sit there and pay those big bucks to, to the AAC it's just not going to happen and again uh, the AAC is they're, they're kind of like still in their infancy stage where they're the ones that agree to play on, on well yeah we'll play games on Wednesday night no problem well, that's smart because it's it's what they had to do for recognition, but they're still a long ways away from uh, sitting there and getting their own conference deal with the TV network that's going to pay them the kind of money that would basically merit the Power Five into saying, yeah, you can join us as a, as a Power Six. Because the bottom line is this all comes down to money again. It really, really does. And it's, it's kind of sad that it does, but it does. Speaking here with Dan Pearson, and, and Dan, to look at kind of continuing the conversation with UCF, to see what they did this year, not only did they say, we're going to call ourselves national champions for being 13-0, but they decided to hang a banner, they decided to celebrate at Disney and have a parade there for themselves, but they did something that, you know, I don't want to say hurts the institution, but it takes money away from the institution. So to say, you know, if the NCAA looks at them and says, oh, well, that's cute, 
that you called yourself a national champion. Or the college football playoff committee says, well, that's that's wonderful, good for you, who cares? They decided to do everything they needed to do to be a national champion, including paying bonuses to their staff, a staff, the entire staff, that is going to Nebraska. So to speak on this, that UCF literally put their money where their mouth is and says, if we're going to be national champions, we're going to pay our coaches like they're national champions. I think that that's something huge, and, and I don't know a lot of institutions that would turn around and say, yeah, you know what, let's do that, instead of just hanging up a banner and calling it a day. So just to speak to you know respect, if you have respect for UCF, for saying if we're going to call ourselves national champions, then we are going to do what we need to do that we wrote on paper to our coaching staff, with or without them being here. Well, I'll tell you, that that was a case of going all in. But when you really think about it, though, that is really uh, the way they should have done it. If, uh, if uh, again, uh, they're just showing their conviction that they believe they're as good as anybody in the country. And, again, I kind of think it was kind of a great move on their part. Again, it's uh, when you start talking about paying bonuses to coaching staff that already announced they were going to leave and uh, if they get into that idea of uh, – buying national championship rings for the players, yeah, you're talking about a pretty good, sizable chunk of money. But again, I, I, I think that shows that they they truly believe they are as good as anybody in the country. And I think uh, the point I was trying to make on some of my uh, Facebook posts and everything is simply, who's to say they're not? I, I, I have a hard time, uh, you know, I... I love how uh, Paul, Paul Feinbaum just came out and said, oh, well, Auburn wasn't really trying in that game. <laughs> that is an insult to Auburn and to the SEC, in my opinion. First of all, if you watch the game, they were trying. <laughs> uh, and uh, honestly, if you look at that game, too, and I, I mentioned this, is that the uh, quarterback, Milton from UCF, played about as bad as he could play in the first half. And they still had a seven-point lead. And then they lost that lead, and everybody goes, well, here it goes. And But instead, UCF's defense comes up with three, three great stops. They score three touchdowns. And the bottom line is that they, if they make a field goal and, and they don't get that ticky-tack uh, uh, chop, chop lock called on, they win that game by 17 points or more. And uh, what I saw was a, was a really, really good college football team that day. And... Uh, I just kind of want to say, who is anybody to say they don't belong? Right, and like you said, speaking here with Dan Pearson, you know, you're not you're not a UCF fan. You're not you know hanging hanging a banner outside the house and, and screaming at the top of your lungs. You know, you're somebody who's taking a look at this impartially, as am I, to say, okay, you know what? I've covered this team like I've covered the rest of the American. Let's look at their reasoning. Let's look at what they have. And, you know, let's see what they brought to the table. I think it's really funny, though, that you bring up how, how some people that are supposed to be reputable and supposed to be people that you can listen to and, and trust that they did their homework to make a statement. And I guess it's the statement you make when you have no other statement to make is, I mean, it would never cross my mind to say something like this because it doesn't seem like it, ha- it holds any merit. But when the statement's made, well, Auburn wasn't trying, like you said. They're not, they weren't trying, they didn't care, they didn't want to win. What team in their right mind goes into a bowl game and says, you know what, guys, let's just pack it in. We, we prepared all you know this whole month to be here and did everything we could to win this game, but let's just you know give it up to them. 
they're the little kids, let's let our little brother win. There's no benefit to that. There's no benefit to losing a bowl game, and there's no benefit to the SEC to being to being embarrassed by the American Athletic Conference because to lose to them was to lose to what they consider a group of five, and that's not acceptable. But if UCF had lost this game, people would say, well, what happened was what was supposed to happen. But when Auburn wins the game, or when Auburn loses the game, we have to listen to people who sound very ignorant and naive to the sport of college football to say, well, Auburn just didn't really want to play the game. They really didn't care. Well, I mean, that's that's really the way that is, it's always been on that, that the guys in the SEC and, and the guys in the Big Ten and the fans of, of the Big 12, they look at teams like UCF, U, U, uh, uh, SMU, Houston, oh, wow, they, they play in that conference. They're not very good. And frankly, sometimes you'll see an upset and say, well, maybe they didn't take them too seriously. And don't get me wrong, I think that that happens sometimes, but that did not happen in this game. Auburn came to play. They actually had a lot to play for. They win that game, they they finish, uh, they finish 12-2, and two, and they finish with probably a top-five ranking. Uh, they, they, had, they had reason to play that game. And uh, I just think that on that day, UCF, the USC, or excuse me, UCF showed that they could sit there and play with them, and I think they can play with any team in the country. Now, are you telling me if they played, if they were playing in that game tonight, would they win? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but I also don't think they're going to lose that game by 60 either. So, you know, again, I think it just comes down to the two things that I think really bother me on this thing more than anything else was. A people acting like well they're not any good they're in, in a in, in a in an inferior conference and then the idea that well we're we're we're, we're the SEC we we're, we would beat them automatically they could never sit there and survive in our conference which frankly if 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 UCF uh, if UCF was in the SEC let's say the East. Uh, I, I, I kind of doubt they they would go twelve and zero in that conference, but I also don't think they're going to be zero and twelve like those those people think that. Oh well, they don't play in the rugged conference. You you look at that you look at that uh, thing. Tennessee was horrible this year. Florida unfortunately was horrible this year. Kentucky was Kentucky. Uh, Vanderbilt is Vanderbilt. The bottom line is is Georgia was the only really good team in that whole division, yet they talk about the SEC like, oh, from top to bottom, we're the toughest conference in the country. No, you're really not anymore. Uh, the Western Conference, you can make that argument, but the conference is both sides, and and one side, frankly, was quite weak. And again, I just look at, well, okay, part of your resume of Ohio say, oh, we beat, uh, we beat uh, all these uh, Big Ten foes which includes Illinois, which USF destroyed in Tampa this year. I, I, this whole idea of, oh, well, you won't, do good, you won't do well in our conference. Well, if you're beating up on these weak sisters in your conference, why do you think we wouldn't beat up on them? Right. And I think one of the things to, to note, too, is that in the final rankings collegiately of 130 teams, UCF defeated three teams ranked in the top 25, and Alabama defeated three teams ranked in the top 25, yet UCF defeated the team, Auburn, that defeated Alabama. So to look at these things, if you just look at it 
and you say, well, who did UCF play? They didn't play anybody. They Auburn, or Alabama and UCF both played three ranked teams and defeated three ranked teams in the final rankings. And UCF one step further defeated the team that defeated Alabama and defeated Georgia, who are the two teams playing in the national championship. So, you know, I think if you want to put this all to bed, speaking to the college football playoff committee, in the future, when a team doesn't belong, because UCF didn't belong in the Fiesta Bowl and they spanked Baylor, they didn't belong in this game and they spanked Auburn. So if they don't belong for a third time, maybe, just maybe, if the college football playoff wants to shut everybody up, let them play. And if they lose, say what you're going to say, but let them play the game. Let them go out there and do it. There's been, I mean, Clemson, when they played Ohio State in recent history of the college football playoff, Ohio State was completely embarrassed. So, you know, it's you say Ohio State has a game like that, but yet UCF is going to be more embarrassed by that? I don't think so. And it's just any argument that people are making logically, well, Alabama this, well, Auburn beat Alabama and UCF beat Auburn. So any argument people make about UCF could have been put to bed if you let them in the college football playoff and allow them to fight for their chance to be there and their fight to and fight for the opportunity to stay. And, and at the same time, Dan, when you look at UCF and, and what they've done this season, I think the college football playoff committee who decides the, the, the teams that play in the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, the Peach Bowl doesn't decide it, it's decided by the committee. I think what they did was they said, you know what? If we think Auburn was just one step out of the college football playoff and if they had beaten Georgia, they would have been in, let's do this. Let's throw them at UCF. Since everybody thinks UCF's so darn good, let's throw them at them, and this will be a test to put them in their place. And the test backfired. So now there's nothing after the test. They beat the test, so you know let them in the playoff, but they can't do that this year. I think that the committee wanted to test the waters with UCF, and I think they wanted to throw something heavy at them, and UCF threw it right back in their face, crumbled up and down on the ground, sparking. So, you know, I think the only way to remedy anything is to stop testing these teams outside of the college football playoff and just throw them in, and if they lose, they lose. But there are teams from the Power Five that have been completely embarrassed in the college football playoff in recent history. Yeah, that has. I think uh, the one thing, uh, just uh, not really a correction, but just just a thought on on the way that whole system works, is I don't think it was, they were looking at so much to give UCF a test, because the bottom line is that out of the group of five, if a team is ranked in the top 15, they get a spot in one of those bowls, and just the nature of the fact that those are the best bowls, they're going to they're gonna face a good team. And so I, I don't really think they looked at that as, uh, we're going to show them by putting them against Auburn. I don't think that happened at all. But the truth of the matter is, so it doesn't change the fact that UCF did embarrass them. Uh, they, 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 I, I don't think there's any question. They showed on the field that on offense, defense, special teams, they were every bit as good as Auburn. In fact, probably better. And uh, I, I think it was a, uh, I think it was a great thing for UCF. And I think, uh, I think it might actually go a long way into eventually getting them into a, into a Power Five uh, conference. But uh, again, right now it's because of the way the bowl system is set up, because of the fact that it's not a true national championship playoff of eight or 16 teams like they do at the one double-A level, 
you're always going to have this arguments about who should have got in, who, who didn't get in and got cheated, and then you're going to always have the arguments about the uh, teams from the non-Power Fives that, hey, we feel they're good enough to be there, but they get ignored. And it is a shame, though, that, again, I, I have an absolute firm belief that because of money, and again, that is the key to this whole thing, where they don't want to share, they don't want to get a non-Power 5 team into that Final Four, because if you win that, then that's a, a, another huge check that that goes to that team, and they 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 want to keep it for themselves. And they'll deny that and say, no, we, we would never do that. Yeah, they're doing that. Uh, that's all they're doing. They want to sit there and keep the money inside their group. And uh, uh, that's unfortunately the way it is. And frankly, that contract, I believe, has eight more years to run, so nothing's going nothing's gonna to change, which is sad. I, uh, the only thing that change between now and then is if one of the conferences decided to expand and one of the Power Fives decided to expand and invite, invite GCF into it. In conclusion here with Dan Pearson, retired sports publicist. Dan, is there a thought on your mind or a hope in your mind? I know, like you said, it comes down to money, and the sad thing about it is when it comes down to money, typically, almost all the time, when it's when it's just about the money, it's it's not good. And it's not, it's not right for all, it's not just for all, because if money is the focus and dollar signs are the focus, justice is surely not going to be the focus with that. Do we expand the college football playoff in a perfect world with an opportunity? Do we say, you know what? Make it eight, make it 12. And if you're going to, if you're going to make it, because with four spots right now, you know, and, and, and the SEC getting so much respect that they can put two in there. And then obviously the ACC, I mean, you, fi- you figure every single year, the SEC, SEC is going to put one to two. The ACC is going to put one. That's how things kind of feel. That's how they've been going. And the Big Ten's kind of been trending downward a little bit with this. Do you expand it and say, okay, if there's a Power Five, you got to have at least five spots, and then you, you make it eight or you make it twelve to say, okay, you know what? We'll bring a UCF in there. We'll bring somebody in here to to shake things up. In the past, a Boise State. Do you want to see in a perfect world? Would you like to just see them expand the college football playoff? Because you know, for me, if if the Power Five continues to do whatever they want and take whatever they want from whoever they want, there's really no point in any other school outside of the Power Five playing college football. So would you, would you like to see an expansion? Well, I think uh, there's, again, uh, two, 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 two points here. One, ideally, would it be fair that, okay, Power Five, your champion gets in automatically, we will reserve one spot for a non-Power 5 school if they are ranked above a certain threshold during the season. And then the other two at large, yeah, I think that would be great. But here's the downside to all this, too, is you absolutely, the, the whole bowl system goes away. And I'm not so sure I'm all in favor of that either. I think, uh, I think uh, the bowls traditionally... Uh, uh, put a lot of money in the school's pockets. It's money that I don't think the Power Five would be willing to give up because I don't know if, if you're aware of this, but all the bowl money goes into one pot in each conference and just gets divided up. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, what's the big deal? A lot of the bowls, nobody's going 
doesn't know, but it would bother a lot of people. And uh, I, I think uh, you have to look at certain things like here in Orlando, we have uh, the people at Central Florida Sports. I mean, that's their livelihood. I mean, putting on those two bowl games and, uh, and all the great community work that those people do, uh, it would be shame, I think, to see that go away. But, again, if you expand the uh, playoffs to eight teams, I, I really feel the bowl system would be in serious trouble. So um, I, uh, I, I have mixed feelings about that. I just, uh, I just feel that uh, if you look at UCF, I have a hard time saying they didn't belong in that Final Four. And, uh, again, if they want to proclaim themselves national championships, I think this is the biggest point that I can make all day is what does it really matter? It isn't hurting anybody. You can laugh at it if you want to. They're not laughing at it. They believe it. So, again, though, what does it matter? And uh, I think that's the point of this whole thing that got me more fired up about anything than when you have a guy like Paul Feinbaum calling, calling the UCF fans cockroaches running out to support, you know. That, that was just totally uncalled for. And uh, I just I just really feel that they have a right to scream whatever they want. They ran the table. And I agree with you. You know, they're the only team out of 130 FBS schools that went undefeated. And at 13-0, and they have every right to say that they're a national champion because what better way to describe a national champion to win every game that's in front of you, never have a loss, <clears throat> go through your your conference championship, win that, and then go to your bowl game and win that as well on a New Year's Six, which is a reputable bowl, and the Peach Bowl that's been around for a long time. So, you know, I don't see anything wrong with it. I don't see anything wrong with celebrating at Disney. And if I'm a coach and I'm leaving and you're handing me more money, uh, I mean, to, ha to have respect, you know, for the, for the uh, institution is one thing. But I said if I was Scott Frost and I was coaching in that game and I, and I, and I beat Auburn, I would have called up Nebraska and said, hey, you know what, guys? I've had a change of heart. So, you know, I think it's a very hard decision to leave. And unfortunately, if you take out the fact that he played there, I think one of the things working in this is the notion that Scott Frost is sitting there going, I've done all this stuff with this team, and we still didn't get respect. So if I'm never going to make the college football playoff as part of the American, I can't stay. And, and that's something that I think needs to change in and of itself. Dan, I appreciate having you here on the show. I know it's been a long time, but I definitely want to have you back on a whole lot sooner. Dan Pearson, retired sports publicist and somebody who I, I really uh, appreciated years ago and appreciate you up to this point. So blessings to you with the uh, <clears throat> everything coming up. I hope you enjoy the game tonight, and I look forward to having you back. Okay, great. Hey, thanks, Dan. All right, take care. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Take care. That coming from Dan Pearson once again retired sports publicist who I met through the Florida Tuskers that were down here in the United Football League with some of the greats, the Joe Theismans, John, Jay Gruden, Doug Flutie, Dominique Rhodes, and so on and so forth. We'll take a step aside here. We'll come back to discuss the college football playoff championship game between Bamalama and the Georgia Bulldogs in just a moment here with the man they call Papa Joe. This is a wake-up call, Fast Break. Utica Pizza Company spells family. Your family. My family. 
their family. The recipes that they have shared with each other throughout the years and have now been so gracious to share them with us. I can sit here and talk with you about all the great things that are on the menu, but we'd be here forever. So let me say this. Utica Pizza Company is second to none. And now you can bring it home with you and you can dine in in the restaurant. UticaPizzaCompany.com will give you all the information that you need. And let me say, these Utica Greens, they're the best. Utica Pizza Company, call them and place your order at 315-214-3060. That's 315-214-3060. Families break bread at Utica Pizza Company. Gear up with the real deal at Dreisig Apparel. Creating what people are going to see and learn about you before they even meet you. Gear up for what you need for your team, business, or event. To look professional, look good, and feel good, outfit yourself at DreisigApparel.com. That's D-R-E-I-S-S-I-G Apparel.com. The only place to gear up with the real deal. The Pennant Trophy Center on 111 East Willow Street in Syracuse, New York, has been making memories for Central New York for over 60 years. It has the trophies for your teams, and when you walk in there, it's so much more than just that. When you walk into the Pennant Trophy Center, you are immersed in the reality that anything can be customized, anything can be engraved, whether it's for your anniversary, your wedding, your bar mitzvah, your birthday party, whatever you want to do with that memory, that watch from grandpa, or that bracelet from mom, or that wedding ring that's been passed down through your family. If you want to get something engraved with a memory to last a lifetime, the Pennant Trophy Center, 111 East Willow Street in Syracuse, New York, where memories are made and where memories last a lifetime. What's the universal language of a fan? Clapping your hands with fan hands. The ultimate sports fan accessory. Find your team color, slip them on, and start cheering on your favorite team with 11 different colors always in stock on fanhands.com where you'll find the ultimate sports fan accessory. Real fans wear fan hands. The name Leeson Staggerwald is synonymous with Central New York with over 80 years of service to the community. Leeson Staggerwald Downtown is your butcher, grocery, pub, and deli located on 117 East Fayette Street in Syracuse, New York. Minutes from the Carrier Dome in your perfect pre-gaming headquarters with Rob Drummond and myself, Dan Tortora, two hours before home games. Leeson Staggerwald Downtown, where you can dine in, take out, pre-game up on the hill with their meats or pre-game inside their walls. Lee's and Staggerwald downtown, a unique experience for every single fan and every member of the community with over eight decades of service. They're open Monday from 10.30 a.m. to 3 p.m., Tuesday through Thursday from 10.30 a.m. to 8 p.m., Friday 10.30 a.m. to 9 p.m., Saturday noon to 9 p.m., and closed on Sunday on 117 East Fayette Street in Syracuse, New York. Welcome back here to Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora on WakeUpCallDT.com, your one-stop sports shop, and on MixLR.com backslash WakeUpCallDT. I know I said we get into the NFL wild card. We're going to do that. We're going to talk about all four games, and then I'm going to have undoubtedly a, a lot to say about my Jaguars-Bills game that I covered at Everbank Field. So that's going to happen 
in just a few moments here. But before we go there, we have to go to this very important, very crucial piece of today's morning menu, proudly presented by the Market Diner on 2100 Park Street in Syracuse, New York, in the regional market across from Destiny, USA. And it is my time to do that thing that I do typically on a Thursday with the man they call Papa Joe, and that is discuss the college football ranks. And so first and foremost, Papa Joe, how are you today? Very good, Daniel. It's very strange that you're, you're, you're down here and we're doing this show. Oh. You're in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Down here broadcasting and coming off of the Jacksonville game, and Papa Joe and I are here and we're we're keeping the keeping the sound as as it always is when he's in Florida and I'm up in New York. So with that being said, the college football playoff is happening tonight, Alabama and Georgia, and that's great and that's all good and that's fun. But the most important thing is that Chick Fil A is on the line. So we're we're betting up against each other. I'm going for the Bulldogs. Papa Joe's going for Alabama. So in this in this quick segment that we're doing down here, I want you to give me your reasons why Alabama is going to be going to defeat Georgia in this game. Well, you know it all, all has to do with defense. You know, Saban has been and probably always will be a defensive-minded coach. Uh, he typically recruits the best athletes and the fastest athletes at those positions, especially at linebacker. Uh, Georgia's has done a phenomenal job this year. Kirby Smart is. He turned them around. I hate to say that because I'm a Gator, but, you know, he has turned them around. He's got two huge backs. They're both seniors. They're both men. And, uh, you know, if, if Nick isn't careful, this thing could get out of hand against him, not with him. But, you know, we'll know in the first couple of series about how this thing is going to go. You can always tell by the sound of the hitting and how fast that they're playing. You know, if, if, if Georgia starts running the ball, which you know they're going to do, you know, they're going to have to, they're going to make Alabama stop the run and, you know, put the, put the game in the hands of a freshman. Well, you know, Fromm is not a freshman anymore. You know, he may be in a freshman class. He's played 12 games. He's not a freshman anymore. He's too tried and true in the SEC, and that means an awful lot. So, you know, with Nick's defense and Georgia's running game, I don't think it's going to be a, a game for the ages. I think it'll be kind of a boring game if that's the way it goes. Perhaps maybe we'll see a lot more throwing than we than we do, uh, but that's how I I see the game going. I I see that uh, Alabama's defense uh, is going to win the game, and justifiably so. That's that's they're in the favorite role, and until someone beats them, then that's the way it's going to be right now. Yeah, you know, I think, and, and I've agreed in the sense of you know Alabama defensively. That's how they win champion championships, and if they keep this game. If they score 24 points in the game and keep a team under them, like that's that's their that's their place. That's where they need to be. 27, you know, kind of maximum in my opinion. Maybe not even get in there. I see Alabama scoring 24 points, and it's whether or not Georgia can surpass that, and that that comes with how they're going to play up against the defense of Alabama. D, you know, defense wins championships for this team. They're a team that I can see. You know, if it's late in the game and the game is very close and it's 24-21 and Georgia's trying to drive and they're down by three, I can see that Alabama interception on the five-yard line. So, you know, Alabama's got to play within their means and play within what they think is going to happen. So they score a few touchdowns and they hunker down on defense. On Georgia's side, they're trying to blow this thing wide open. And you got to remember what Georgia did to Oklahoma, the team that plays no defense whatsoever and just scores points. They were able to put 54 on a team that scored 48 points themselves. And to see Georgia go up that high, I didn't think Georgia 
was going to necessarily score anywhere near that. I thought they'd be in the 30s, but it just shows how much firepower they have. Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle together have combined this season for 2,449 rushing yards as a combined unit. Nick Chubb has 6.4 yards of carry. Sony Michelle has 8. They both have touchdowns that have been over 50 yards, and they've combined to score 31 of the 41 rushing touchdowns for Georgia this season. And Jake Fromm, like you said, he's not a freshman anymore. This man knows what he's doing. 23 touchdowns to only five interceptions this season, and he's completing just about 64% of his passes. On the other side of it is a guy that I want to be, I want to kind of be very, I have to think on how you want to describe this because Jalen Hurts has, has been described by some, I feel like, or analyzed by some to be not a good quarterback. And this man has over 2,000 yards. He completes 61% of his passes. He has 17 touchdowns, only one interception through the air. So to say that Jalen Hurts is just kind of that running quarterback that doesn't have an arm and has no strength, I think is a very ignorant and naive thing to say. I think that Jalen Hurts is more of a dual threat than maybe he gets credit for. And I think that if you tell him he can't air it out, he'll turn around and air it out in this game. So I don't think it's going to be easy on either side of it. I think Alabama's defense is better, but I think Georgia's offense is better. So it's banging your heads together to see who's going to come out with the victory. I'm giving uh, I'm giving Georgia the edge in the sense of Jake Fromm is, is more of your traditional guy back under center who if you need him to kind of hunker down and make it happen, you know, there are opportunities – for him to go out there and do that but and with guys like DeAndre Swift and company. But I just really feel that I feel like the rushing attack is too much for Alabama. I think as much as they want to, you know, stuff you and knock you down and their defense wants to, you know, be that, that team in the trenches, running backs are in the trenches as well. And if they can hit that Alabama line and break through, which I think they will at least a few times in this game, I'm giving I'm giving Georgia the slight edge because of Sony Michelle and Nick Chubb, but I am in no way saying that this will probably not be one of the most exciting, if not the most exciting, college football playoff I have potentially seen to date at this point. Well, we bring up good points. Uh, get back to Jalen Hurts for a while. Uh, this kid was a four-star uh, recruit out of Texas. He was coached by his father. For anyone to say he's not a good quarterback, they obviously don't understand the game. Now, how many freshmen would you think Nick Saban would start at Alabama? Zero. This kid started as a freshman. He beat out some uh, upperclassmen. He's a classy guy. He's not, a, he's not really a run-first quarterback. And he's not really, I wouldn't call him an, an option quarterback. Uh, he, he'll run, just like we saw with Bortles yesterday. He'll run if he has to. He's an amazing, amazing athlete. He... Yeah, so he's not going to sit back there and throw for 300 yards every every game. That's not what Saban looks for. Saban looks to control the clock and play tough defense. On the other side, if Georgia continues to run the ball the way they have been and keep the ball out of Hurts' hands and keep Nick Saban on the sideline, that's going to that's going to bode well for uh, for Georgia. Georgia needs a run run game. We know that they got to control the clock. And it's it's up to really it's up to Alabama to win the game. It, it's in Georgia's grasp. Frankly, they're not really favored, but they're favored by a lot of football people. Let's put it that way. 
control the line of scrimmage and both bats maybe get 70, 80 yards or something like that and keep the ball out of Hertz's hand, it'll go George's way. I don't see it that way. I think Saban is a little bit more uh, smarter than people give him credit for. He always puts a perfect, almost a perfect product on the line. His coaching tree is, is without doubt the best there is around. And he's going to lose another one of his defensive uh, coordinators to uh, Tennessee, Jeremy Pruitt. So, you know, it's you like to say that when the kids are playing, uh, someone gets hurt, it's next man up. Well, it's almost the same thing with Saban. You know, if he loses a coach, next man up, but he'll find someone else. So it's going to be a great game. Uh, as I stated earlier, I don't think it's going to be a high-scoring game. It may tend to be a little bit boring if Georgia gets the running game going, but, you know, that's college football. And as the boomer says, that's why they play the game. And you said there is no tree better than Nick Saban's, and one of the apples off that tree, Kirby Smart. And to take a look at what's going on with Alabama and Georgia as far as their injuries go, Alabama uh, linebacker Dylan Moses is out indefinitely. Uh, linebacker Sean Dion Hamilton out indefinitely. Donnie Lee Jones is not on the team anymore. Miller, Miller Forrestal is out for the season. Probable for Monday is Minka Fitzpatrick, their defensive back. Upgraded to probable is running back Joshua Jacobs. Downgraded to out are offensive lineman Lester Cotton and linebacker Anthony Jennings. Nigel Croft is questionable. And my favorite name of Alabama, Hootie Jones, is questionable to play in this game with a knee injury. Uh, for, for Georgia, we have a concussion out indefinitely as Rashad uh, Roundtree. Charlie Warner is downgraded to doubtful in the game tonight at tight end for Georgia. Jason Stanley is upgraded to probable as a wide receiver for the team. D'Angelo Gibbs, uh, Latavius Brinney, and and Natrez Patrick, pardon me, Natrez Patrick are all questionable in this. Natrez and Latavius, both disciplinary suspension type things for them. So just to give people kind of a note of some of the players and the numbers that you may or may not see out there. But once again, I am picking the Georgia Bulldogs. I think it's a sign that in my travels I was speaking with a Georgia Bulldog fan that was up in Syracuse. So I'm going with the Georgia Bulldogs and have made my choice. Papa Joe is going with Alabama. And the most important thing is the game's being played in Atlanta, which is the home of Chick-fil-A. And whoever loses this thing is going to have to pony up and get some Chick-fil-A. So here's the hope in the Polynesian sauce is on Papa Joe this time around. <laughs> All right. It'll be a lot of fun to watch it. And I'm sure we'll watch it together here with my son. So uh, we'll see you in a little while. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Papa right. Joe. That coming from Papa Joe in Papa Joe's Picks. We had to do an early one here for this week with the national championship happening tonight, January 8th. Bamalama taking on that team that they call the Bulldogs. And I have chosen Georgia, and he has chosen Alabama. We'll take a quick step aside, and I'll come back with NFL wildcard coverage and my first-hand, first-person view of the Jacksonville Jaguars' victory against the Bills in the NFL wildcard. This is a wake-up call, Fast Break. Hey, Wake Up Call listeners, this is Tom Taylor, owner of Sammy Malone's, located at 2 Oswego Street in Baldwinsville, New York, overlooking the beautiful Seneca River. We proudly open our doors to you seven days a week, beginning at 11 a.m. daily, with free parking. Whether it's game day, after work drinks, 
or a meal with family and friends, we are honored that you come visit us. Call 315-635-5407 for parties and catering. I'll see you at Sammy Malone's, home of the best sandwich in Beeville. Hi, this is Domenico Vitali, owner of Giovanni's Formalware, where you look great and feel even better with our renowned tailoring and alteration services on any suit or any tuxedo from anywhere. Call 315-455-8729. That's 315-455-8729. Stop in locally on Route 11 in North Syracuse next to the Ponderosa Plaza where you can choose your style, get fitted, and tailored, all at Giovanni's Formalware. I'm George Townsend of Honda City with some good advice from buying a new car. The true cost of owning a new car is determined by the appraised value when you trade it. No vehicle appraises higher than a Honda. Next, look for low APRs and deep discounts. You also want low maintenance costs and great fuel economy. That's why my advice to you is to buy a new Honda. Looking pre-owned, visit our Honda Certified Used Car Center. Honda City, 7140 Henry Clay Boulevard, Liverpool, or hondacity-cny.com. It would be a pity if you don't shop For all of us that have always wanted our favorite restaurant to come to us, it's now a reality in Central New York with It's a Utica Thing, with Utica Pizza Company bringing their wonderful recipes that they've handed down through generations to you, to your events, to your business, to your home. It's a Utica Thing, proudly bringing Utica Pizza Company on wheels to your location. Call 315-738-8946. That's 315-738-8946 to bring Utica Pizza Company to your doorstep with It's a Utica Thing. Welcome back here to Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora on wakeupcalldt.com, your one-stop sports shop, and on mixlr.com backslash wakeupcalldt. What's better than talking about Chick-fil-A? Well, this NFL wild card was a wild card weekend that truly fits the name. Just like a wild card that you play in the game Uno, which is what this makes me think of every time. The wild card, deuces wild, whatever you want to call it. There were some wild cards that happened in the wild card weekend and some crazy finishes and changes to what people maybe have expected. And one of those, two of those games, they both happened on Saturday. The teams that you thought, eh, maybe, maybe not, probably not. How about this? The Atlanta Falcons winning their game. This is the first one we're going to talk about here in the morning menu, proudly presented by the Market Diner on 2100 Park Street in Syracuse, New York, in the regional market across from Destiny, USA. This is what we're going to discuss here right now. First and foremost is this game. The Falcons up against the Los Angeles Rams. The Rams, this phenomenal offense. One of the best offenses in the country, regarded by some, especially during the season and early in the season, as being the most high-powered offense in the country of 32 teams. And they fell apart in this Falcons-Rams game. And to me, it was it was insane. But again, the Falcons are the Falcons, and the Falcons look like they were down and out. They look like they had nothing left to give to the season. There was a time where you just thought the Falcons had almost completely knocked themselves out of this thing. And then they woke the heck up, they turned their butts around, and they did what they needed to do to get into the NFL playoffs. And not just get into the playoffs, 
but to start to win in the playoffs, to get this game. And now all of a sudden people are like, oh my good lord, could it be Alabama, or Alabama, thinking about tonight, could it be Atlanta and the Patriots again? I don't think so. I don't think it's going to be both. Could be neither. And I know that I'm insane in making a bold prediction that I don't think the Patriots will go back because in order to beat the Patriots, you have to beat the Patriots and the officials. But where we sit right now is in a world of change in the NFL. Eight out of 12 teams were not there last year. That's not a normalcy in the NFL. To see teams like the Tennessee Titans and the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Buffalo Bills and all their droughts in the same year is unheard of. So we're going to go game by game, and I keep saving the best till last, which is my experience in Jacksonville yesterday, and we'll talk about that very soon. But to start with this Falcons game, now, to me, the Atlanta Falcons, they, they're that team that you just can't count out because when you thought you could or, you know, maybe you're a Detroit Lions fan and you had this notion like, okay, well, we're going to make it because look at what Atlanta's been doing in the NFC since they beat the Detroit Lions. But it didn't matter. Atlanta did what they needed to do. And Atlanta in this game, they got two field goals to start off the first quarter, held the Rams scoreless in the first quarter. Then Devontae Freeman, who beat me in not one, but two of my fantasy leagues. And I, I love him. Would love for him to be on my team next year. Was not loving him for those couple weeks. But Devontae Freeman, he's been going to work. And he's looked more like himself I want to say on paper, scoring-wise, because he's been such a huge part of the offense since coming back from injury. So the team at that point is already up 13 to nothing. But the Rams come back. Cooper Cup gets a touchdown. I said, he to me, he's still Jared Goff's favorite target. Still the best guy to put out there if you're playing daily fantasy and, and whatnot. And then they get a 35-yard field goal, so they make it 13 to 10 at the half. But then they come out and they allow the same third quarter that they allowed in the first quarter. The Rams don't score. They give up two field goals. It's the exact carbon copy. Matt Bryant kicks two field goals from about the same places, a 20-something yarder and a 50-something yarder, and the Rams can't get the ball into the end zone or through the uprights. Then in the fourth quarter, they get a field goal. At this point, the game's 19-13, still in reach, and Julio Jones gets a touchdown to cancel out the Los Angeles Rams, the number three seed, up against the six-seeded Atlanta Falcons. And to me, I mean, when we look at Atlanta and we look at how they played this game, I said Matt Ryan's not your fantasy player to put out there because he's either one touchdown, no picks, or one touchdown, one pick. He continued that trend with one touchdown, no picks in this game. Devontae Freeman and Julio Jones, your best players to play from what Mike and I had to say, and they both had touchdowns. Mohamed Sanu, I said, is another guy to look at. He had 75 yards in the game. By far, he's playing his best season since coming out of Rutgers and then going to Cincinnati and Cincinnati not knowing how the hell to use him and letting him go, which Cincinnati did with Mohamed Sanu and with Marvin Jones Jr., who's the number one in Detroit right now. And then, you know, you look at the defensive side for Atlanta to take a look at some of the things that they were able to do here in this game. As far as sacking the quarterback, they got to the quarterback three times and they had five tackles for a loss. They matched the Rams defense with this but the Rams offense it was about scoring it's about getting this game in the 40s and seeing if Atlanta can hang with you and if they can follow you all the way up 
The Rams had more tackles, they had more this, they had more that. But at the end of the day, they didn't have more points. The Rams were beaten out by a team in the Falcons that just did too much. They did too much, and they took care of business when they needed to do it. As far as first downs, they matched each other. Passing first downs, they pretty much matched each other. They were close on rushing first downs. So many different areas, they were close to one another. The Rams had 11 drives. The Falcons had 13. But the thing with the Falcons is they did more with what they had. And they had possession. Sometimes holding on to the ball doesn't mean anything if you can't score, obviously. But in this game, Atlanta minimized the Rams' ability to be on offense. And if offense is the thing that you hang your hat on, this was something that Atlanta did right. Atlanta's defense is not something that we talk about this year. 37 minutes and 35 seconds they held on to the ball, allowing it to the Rams for 22 minutes and 25 seconds. They had the ball, Atlanta, for 15 more minutes, an entire quarter. An entire quarter of the game. If you look at brass tacks and you say 15 minutes and 10 seconds, just look at it this way. The Rams had three quarters to win the game. The Falcons had five. Because they took one away from the Rams. They took an entire 15 minutes of the game away from the Rams offense. An entire 15 minutes of the game away from the Rams offense. Out of 60 minutes, they had the ball for more than half of the time. And like I said, if you do nothing with it, but they were able to at least bare minimum get their field goals, getting four of them. They did what they needed to do, two touchdowns, four field goals, holding on to the ball, and finishing when you're doing that is how you win the game. They kept possession and took an entire 15-minute quarter. It's like the Rams only had three quarters to play the game and not four. That was Atlanta's key to success, and they won the game. And I give them huge credit for it because it was an amazing thing to do against an offense that was supposed to be amazing. And they're moving on. And Atlanta, you know, you talk about the game to see who's going to be the empty nester. Atlanta's going all the way to Philadelphia, and they're going to play each other up the East Coast in Philly, the number six seed against the number one seed in the divisional round, which I'm ecstatic to see. The next game I want to talk with you about is the Carolina game. So let's jump into Carolina and New Orleans, a game that happened after the Jaguars-Buffalo game yesterday. I chose Carolina, or pardon me, I chose New Orleans to win this game, and it was a lot closer than I thought it would be when, you know, push came to shove. I thought that Carolina was going to score. I thought that they were going to make it interesting, but, you know, for me, the Saints... The Saints had to show some separation in this game. The Saints had to show what they can do in a, in a matchup like this because I think the Saints are a team that can still turn some heads. I think that they're a team that could still find their way into the Super Bowl, but they have to play very, very well down the stretch because they're playing. the Saints are playing the Vikings. Okay? And the Vikings don't lose to many people. So to know that that's going to be the next matchup for the Saints is nothing easy to run through. I think Minnesota's got a shot at going to the Super Bowl without their starting quarterback and without their starting running back, which is insane, you would think, to say at the beginning of the season. People would have thought that I was absolutely nuts. But if you look at it right now, 
why can't the Minnesota Vikings move forward? And that's something that is credit to them, to their defense. Their defense is right there with the Jaguars' defense. In some cases, it's better than the Jaguars' defense. In other cases, it's a little bit below the Jaguars' defense. But to know that New Orleans is playing Minnesota in Minnesota, this is a huge, huge game for both sides because New Orleans, Minnesota, the Rams, and the Eagles had all been fighting for the right to say that they were the best, and the Eagles and the Vikings held true to being at the top, but New Orleans was right behind them, and Los Angeles was a team that fell down a little bit, and so did New Orleans down the stretch, but New Orleans is still alive, and you can't say that about the Rams. So to look at this game with New Orleans, you know, fantasy-wise, I told you that if you were going to lean on either quarterback, the quarterback for you to really lean on in this game of the two was not Drew Brees, it was Cam Newton because he had to do more in this game than was expected of Drew Brees because Drew Brees has two stout running backs that are going to get that job done. So to go to this matchup and take a look at how things kind of shook out here, you know, Drew Brees had two touchdowns, one pick. Cam Newton had two touchdowns, no interceptions. He ran the ball for 37 yards in this game. But Alvin Kamara and Mark Ingram, as much as they didn't run the ball very well, 23 yards and 22 was terrible, Kamara got a touchdown, and Josh Hill, Ted Ginn Jr. See, the thing about New, this is the thing about New Orleans. You look at this game and you say, okay, it's Cam Newton and Christian McCaffrey and Greg Olson versus everybody, right? And New Orleans has Drew Brees, and they have Michael Thomas, and they have this backfield with Mark Ingram and Alvin Kamara that's so good. It's a great one-two punch. And if Michael Thomas plays better and Ted Ginn Jr. comes up and does something and Brandon Coleman and Josh Hill, all these guys that you're not really keying in on because they haven't had great years this year, then New Orleans is just a, they're a very deep offensive team, and they're dangerous. Well, they had to rely on those guys that haven't done well this year. They had to rely on Josh Hill's touchdown to be the separation. Ted Ginn's touchdown to be the separation. Michael Thomas got 131 yards, didn't get in the end zone, but again, his yardage helped to be the separation because Mark Ingram and Alvin Kamara, who can combine for 200 yards at a time, combined for 45 yards in this game rushing. That's it. 45 yards. The longest run by Mark Ingram was 7 yards. The longest by Kamara was 5. So, New Orleans won this game because they did what they needed to do, and they went to the players that you wouldn't expect them to go to. And they leaned on people that they haven't had to lean on all season. And that shows their depth, and it shows their ability. On the other side, I told you fantasy-wise, to play Greg Olson and Christian McCaffrey, they were the two best options that you had next to Cam Newton, who I also said to put out there. Greg Olson, I said, even though he's quiet, even though he's been quiet since he came back, do not underestimate what he can be to this team. Do not underestimate Greg Olson in a big-time game. And he had 107 yards to lead the team with a touchdown on only eight catches. He was targeted 12 times. Christian McCaffrey had the best receiving game of his rookie career in this playoff game. 101 yards on six catches, one touchdown. And he also ran the ball 16 uh, six times for 16 yards, which wasn't much of anything, but he was involved in both. The crazy thing about this is it's going to take me a few days to realize Carolina's not in the playoffs. 
because as much as I pick New Orleans to win this game, I think Carolina's a dangerous team. And I think that if their defense was a little bit better, and if, you know, if they didn't get rid of the, you know, Josh Normans of the world, and they had, I just, I look at all the weapons they have on offense and say, if their defense is a little bit better, look at this offense. Christian McCaffrey has gotten better with time. Greg Olson is back on the team and back playing and doing his thing. Cam Newton did not throw an interception in this game. So, you know, Carolina, it's hard for me to realize they're gone because I wouldn't want to play Carolina in the playoffs. And I kind of expect them to be that team that's like in there tussling some things around and and mixing stuff up and making things kind of uncomfortable for other people. So, you know, kudos to New Orleans for winning a game where they couldn't lean on Kamara and they couldn't lean on Ingram to win the game. They did what they needed to do, but this just shows the danger zone that is New Orleans, that they can go back to Drew Brees if they need to. They can go to Josh Hill. They can go to Michael Thomas. They can go to Ted Ginn Jr., who is ageless out of Ohio State. They can bounce around with all these guys, and then, oh my gosh, if for a second you forget that they have been relying on Kamara or Mark Ingram, they're going to beat the hell out of you. So this was a really good game because both of these teams I could see playing in the divisional round, if not the championship round, because they're both very, very dangerous, and they both have a lot of talent on offense. So a shout-out to New Orleans for winning this game. The next one I want to discuss before we take our final step aside and get into the Jacksonville coverage is to take a look at the game, now that we've done the NFC, to look at the AFC and the Titans win over the Kansas City Chiefs. Now the Chiefs started off the season overperforming. They beat the Patriots in Foxborough in week one, okay? I would call that an overperformance. I don't think many had Kansas City winning on the road in Foxborough. They might have picked themselves, and they should. You should always pick yourself. But I don't know how many people stood out there and made that type of bold prediction at the beginning of the season. But kudos to Kansas City for doing what they did. As the season trailed along, though, Kansas City started to trip. And if we go back and we look at Kansas City and how they played, they start off on a five-game winning streak. That's how they start the season. They had a five-game winning streak, lost 2-1-1, and then had a four-game winning streak. So you go from winning five in a row to losing six out of seven games, then win four, to end the season. You did what you needed to do to keep the Chargers at bay and keep the Raiders at bay. I mean, the Raiders were out of it, but the Chargers had a chance in Week 17 to be in the playoffs. So you did what you needed to do. You beat the teams you were supposed to beat, like the Broncos and the Dolphins. But <clears throat> we're a long ways away from the team that beat the Patriots. 42-27. to 27. This game was 28-27, and Kansas City fans were biting their nails and going nuts and freaking out. Even if you weren't a Kansas City fan, you were biting your nails if you're not a fan of the Patriots in that game, thinking, all right, well, Kansas City's up by one. They're about to lose by 14. They didn't. They were up by one and finished the game up by 15. They blew the doors open. They took care of business, and they went home happy. In this game, Alex Smith started off strong and had two touchdowns. Kareem Hunt 
did some good things. Tyreek Hill did some good things. Travis Kelsey did some good things. Demarcus Robinson, who a lot of people in his second season out of Florida might not know on Kansas City, he caught a touchdown and made things interesting and had some fun out there for this team. And then Travis Kelsey goes out before halftime with a concussion. And Kareem Hunt doesn't have a good game after having over 1,300 yards as a rookie. He scores a touchdown in the first quarter. Travis Kelsey does as well. At the end of the first half, 21-3 Kansas City. You shut the game off. You move on. You say, yeah, okay, whatever. And then you go back to this game and you're totally stunned and appalled and it's strange what's going on. 21-3, Kansas City in the first half. And I told you in my predictions, I did pick Kansas City. I said 31-28. And if people said to me at halftime, they're like, Dan, or even before halftime, I don't see how in the hell Tennessee is going to score any points against Kansas City. They're being completely embarrassed right now. And what did they do? What did Kansas City do? They blew it. As they did so many times in losing 6 out of 7 in the middle of the season, they blew it. Kansas City could have been a 12-win team, a 10-win. They could have done so many different things better than a 10-win team. I can't believe they got to 10 victories seeing some of the games that they lost. To score 21 points in the first half and none in the second half. They were shut out for 30 minutes. They allowed a touchdown to Marcus Mariota from Marcus Mariota. Derrick Henry had a touchdown in the game. Eric Decker had a touchdown in the game. 22-21. to 21. They win this game. 22-21. to 21. And kudos to Tennessee for missing the two-point conversion but preventing Kansas City from scoring. The question during the game was, will Alex Smith be the guy moving forward? Or is Pat Mahomes the second who they drafted in this draft of 2017, is he going to be the guy that they give it to right now? And in the first half, you're like, wow, for everybody that counted out Alex Smith, obviously he's going to hold on to the sink for as long as he wants to. At least for next season, he'll be the starting quarterback. But when you blow a 21-3 lead... Yeah, it's on your defense for giving up three touchdowns, but it's on your offense for the incapability of scoring for 30 minutes. So this game simply went from Alex Smith has this playoff, but maybe not the future of the of the Chiefs, to, wow, Alex Smith will be the quarterback next year, to, all right, Pat Mahomes, why don't we just call you the starting quarterback today and start prepping you and getting you ready for next season. That's how quickly things shifted in Kansas City. And for Kansas City fans, and I said this, even though I picked Kansas City, I said letting the Titans in the playoffs is a danger zone. So for all of you that think it's going to be so easy for the Patriots and this, that, and the other, I'm not saying necessarily the Patriots are going to lose. I'm just saying when you let Tennessee in the playoffs, they are a pain in the butt to anybody. Let Jacksonville tell you. They're a pain in the butt. So 
Kansas City fell apart, and Tennessee did what they needed to do. And even when they missed a two-point conversion, their defense hunkered down. And another team that's not known, in my opinion, for their defensive prowess this season, Tennessee. You know, you look at how they played, even how they beat the Jaguars earlier on in the season, 37-16 to on the road in Jacksonville. Jacksonville only lost two games at home out of eight, including their playoff game this season. They started 0-2 and then went 6-0. and And their first home game that they had was against the Titans and... Their defense wasn't there, and their offense wasn't there. In a game that was very uncharacteristic of how they've been playing this season, they lost 37-16 to the Titans. Titans are not an easy team to play. But the Titans go back and forth. They lost 57-14 to the Texans. They lost 16-10 to the Dolphins. But then they beat the Seahawks 33-27. And they beat the Jaguars 37-16. And they got blown out by the Steelers 40-17, so I'm sure they're not... I'm sure they're happy to not have to see them in the next round of the playoffs. But then they lose to the Cardinals 12-7. They lost to the Niners and the Cardinals just like the Jaguars did. They lost to the Rams. And then they beat the Jaguars in the last game of the season 15-10 to to get into the playoffs. So Tennessee is one of those teams where you have to take a step back and go, well, who the hell are they? And that could be a danger for the Patriots having to face them this coming week. We'll take a final fast break of the show, and we will come back for what you've all been waiting for, which is for me to break the silence on the Jacksonville Jaguars game that I was on hand for. We'll talk about that in just a moment. This is a wake-up call fast break. Hi, this is Kira from Looking Glass Events, where we're always giving you a reason to celebrate. Whether you have a small business, large business, personal event, or wedding, we are available to plan and coordinate your dream event to life. Every detail, every step, Looking Glass Events is working with you all the way. Call us at 315-702-4653. That's 315-702-4653. Or contact us through our website, lgweddingsandevents.com. Looking Glass Events giving you a reason to celebrate. The Wildcat Sports Pub in Camillus, New York, is located on 3680 Milton Avenue in the Home Depot Plaza. It is your family-friendly sports bar and restaurant. Folks, some sports bars aren't family-friendly. Some family-friendly restaurants are not sports bars. The Wildcat Sports Pub in Camillus, New York, is proud to be both. It is that marriage that you've been looking for for years. The Wildcat Sports Pub is your home base for your sports bar and restaurant needs, games for the kids, indoor and outdoor activities, and enough things on the menu to come back every single week and get to try something new. They're open Sundays from noon to 8 p.m., Monday through Wednesday, 11 a.m. to 11 p.m., and Thursday through Saturday from 11 a.m. to midnight. For reservations and party information, call 315 315- 487-2222 for the Wildcat family-friendly sports pub and restaurant. Welcome back here to Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora on WakeUpCallDT.com, your one-stop sports shop, and on MixLR.com backslash Wake Up Call DT, happy to have you here and part of the broadcast here on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora and a big 
God bless and a thank you to each and every single one of you that have been a part of the show Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern Time. I truly appreciate and thank you for the opportunity to share with you my thoughts and my feelings on so many different things that are going on in the sports world and in life in general. It is now time in the final piece of today's show for me to share with you my thoughts from being on-site, on-hand, on-location, covering the Jacksonville game up against the Buffalo Bills from the wild card round that happened on Sunday, January 7th. And so it, it was my first playoff that I ever got to do in the NFL, my first coverage of that. I've been covering the NFL for a long time, and this is the first time that I had the opportunity to be on hand for a playoff game. And so I want to thank the Jacksonville Jaguars for that. I want to thank them for their time, their energy, their hard work, and, and everything that they put forward into um, everything that they've done. It is not easy to host a playoff. It is not easy to prepare and do all this stuff. And they have been a stand-up organization this entire time that I've covered them for the last nine years. So let me thank the Jaguars first and foremost for the work that they have done and to the level that they have done it. I want to I want to thank Elisa uh, Abbott. I want to thank... Um, Dan Edwards, I want to thank uh, you know Andy, I want to thank Gabby, uh, the entire staff with the Jacksonville Jaguars, the front office, the people that we don't talk about, you know that you don't hear from ever. You know, let me be the ones to shout them out because I've worked with a lot of different uh, co collegiate and professional institutions, and the Jacksonville Jaguars are at the top of any of them in the sense of how they go about their business, how they do what they do, and to the level that they do what they do, and how they treat people. So, you know, I want to give them a lot of credit for the work that they've put forward because those they should be credited. And like I said, they're the unsung heroes of the background of, of how these teams tick and how they run. So thank you to making it a pleasant and exciting media experience because I think a lot of people can take some notes from the Jacksonville Jaguars organization. With that being said, I <laughs> I started watching the Jaguars at nine years old, 23 years ago. And uh, when I said that to my father yesterday, I had to think about it because, you know, we remember things differently sometimes. And in my head, I was like, no, nah, I, I was a teenager when I started watching the Jaguars. I wasn't. I was nine. And, you know, I remember Steve Bureline and, and Natron Means and, and, and Jimmy Stewart and all these guys that they tried to bring in to make it work. And then they brought in this group of Donovan Darius, who played for Syracuse, and Aaron Beasley and Marcus Stroud and Tony Baselli and Mark Brunel and Keenan McCardell and Kyle Brady and Jimmy Smith and the man they call Fred Taylor. And they just blew up on the scene. They had this coach, Tom Coughlin, who I believe was 49 years old when he came in. And they started to, you know, do some good things, but they were an expansion team. And then all of a sudden it was playoffs, 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 playoffs. It was knocking on the door of the Super Bowl and the AFC Championship Games. It was beating John Elway and Jacksonville being this team that, even when they did all that, still flew under the radar. And I feel like if I told people that right now, they'd want to fact check me. 
because, you know, I, I feel like, you know, the history of the Jaguars is not, like, readily known around the country because they're still looked at as that young franchise that's not that good. And, you know, I mean, you see after Tom Coughlin, the time of Jack Del Rio, which was riding the equator, 68 wins, 71 losses. You look at Mike Malarkey, who was there for 15 seconds, who's now the head coach of Tennessee, ironically. And then you look at the Gus Bradley time, his era, and how, you know, you wanted to root for a guy like Gus Bradley because he really cares. It seemed like he really cared about his players and and that he was a guy that, you know, was positive and tried to, you know, be calm and have strong, you know, uh, positivity toward what he was building. And it just didn't work out. And then Dougie Marone and Nate Hackett come down from Buffalo in a time where I think Doug thought, I'm going to be a head coach, I'm going to take Nate with me. And it didn't work out, but it was almost a contingency plan to find a way to hide a head coach and their right-hand person inside of a staff that has a head coach and a right-hand person. And Greg Olson gets fired. So Nate Hackett, the quarterback's coach, <clears throat> becomes the interim offensive coordinator writing on the wall. And then Gus gets fired, and Doug Marone for two games becomes the interim head coach writing on the wall. And then all of a sudden, you have an interim head coach and an interim offensive coordinator who've worked together at Syracuse and Buffalo, who have been together on the Jaguars staff for two years, who just so happen to make sense, and then you hire them officially to be your head coach and offensive coordinator. So, you know, the the writing's been on the wall for this, and I've discussed all this in, in a video that I shot that you can see on youtube.com backslash wakeupcalldt uh, on the prowl, and you can also see it on facebook.com backslash wakeupcalldt as well. To speak just on my experience of this game, um, I was up in Syracuse. Uh, everybody knows the weather in the Northeast has been terrible. And I had to fly down. My best bet was to fly Sunday morning before the game. As much as you think that's crazy, the weather had, was supposed to be getting a little bit better. It had stopped snowing. So I'm not going to name the airline that I was on. But because I can't believe that this happened. But I guess stranger things have happened in my life. I got to the airport, and my foot's been injured. So um, I got taken up to my gate for the first time ever in a wheelchair. Shout out to my grandpa, who did that years ago, and he let me ride in his wheelchair, my papa on my, my mom's side. So I'm in a wheelchair yesterday morning going to my gate. I get to the gate, flight's on time. Thank Jesus. No flights have been on time. They've gotten canceled for the last three days, two days, three days in Syracuse. Then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm writing a message about going down to Jacksonville. And as I'm writing it, I'm like four words in, five words in. And I get an email from the airline, your flight's been delayed an hour. That's okay. I still got about 45 minutes once I get to my connection to get down to Jacksonville. Then... A flight attendant shows up, and the other one had walked away, and now I'm like, okay, maybe they're looking for their crew. Then one of the people that's supposed to be getting on the plane says, we're still waiting on a pilot. The plane's sitting at the gate. 
doing nothing. The plane's there. And there's no pilot. I would think that the checklist of an airline would be, number one, do we have a plane? Number two, do we have someone to buy the plane? Or fly the plane, pardon me. And then number three, do we have snacks? But, you know, number one, we need a plane. Number two, we need somebody to fly it. I mean, it's like any movie, any action movie, right? You're, you're trying to get away. You need the getaway plane, and you need somebody that can get it off the air, or off the ground and in the air. So this airline didn't think, you know, the, the two most important things through, I guess, or at least one of them. And so I was stranded. They came over to us, said the flight's going to be canceled, and we're going to drive everybody to the Connection City on a bus. And I would have missed the game, and I wouldn't have done it anyways because I wouldn't have felt safe. So I get put on another flight. I take a direct flight down to Orlando. I get to Orlando. I rent a car while I'm walking through Orlando on my phone. I get the car. I drive two and a half hours to Jacksonville. To go to this game, I got to park farther than what I'm used to parking. I got an injured foot, so I had one of the bike peddlers take me in his carriage to the gate that I needed to go to. And that's how I got into the stadium. So it was a quest that I could say probably nobody else had to go through. Or point zero 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 one percent of us did. But that's how much I wanted to be there, and that's how much I wanted to cover this. Being in the stadium, 69,442 tickets sold. There were Bills fans sprinkled all over the place, so shout out to Buffalo because you guys came out in a big way and you somehow made it down to Jacksonville, just like me. So that was huge. And the Jaguars had passed out this white towel that you know, had their logo on it and everything, and... The irony is that they're playing Pittsburgh in the next round, who has become famous for their terrible towel, that yellow and black towel. So I said, you know, I wonder if Jaguars fans are going to be given those towels to take to Pittsburgh, but or if they're going to take them themselves, or if there will be more. But, you know, being in the press box, in the same seat I've been in all season, and watching this game, and seeing the fans, and then thinking back that, I've covered this team for nine years on location, uh, for the majority, nine years on location. And the last time that they had made it to the playoffs was ten years ago. So I missed it by a year. And the last time they had been at home was 17 years ago, and I was 15 years old. And I was not a professional broadcaster. I was still in high school. So... It was a momentous moment for me that I didn't really have words for. And I still struggle to find the words for, for what I experienced with Jacksonville. Because for years, especially the last uh, four years, you know, I've told people, look out for Jacksonville. And people kind of just laugh and pat me on the back and say, okay, Dan, you know, why don't you go back to the funny farm? Good for you, buddy. It's nice for you to have high hopes. But I've just seen it. I've seen it through who they were drafting, how they were drafting, what they were drafting, uh, their faith in Blake Bortles, their faith in Nate Hackett, being able to be with Blake for three 
of his four seasons in the NFL, despite him having three different offenses. At least he had some continuity in the coach that was with him day in and day out, which goes understated and unnoticed, and it shouldn't, because we blame the quarterback, but when you take away the person that he has a good relationship with that's trying to teach him, that changes things, can change things. And we, you know, we put so much on the individual player, and we don't think about the coaching around you. I mean, yeah, you have to, you have to have personal responsibility, but you know, a good coach is like having a good CEO. It's like having a good GM. It's like having a good president. You know, if you're running a restaurant and you're a GM who doesn't reprimand anybody for using their phone or coming to work disheveled or drunk or high, you're not going to run a good business. And it's the same thing in the NFL. If you don't have a good head coach, it doesn't matter how good your talent is because they're not going to want to work for you or feel comfortable with you or, you know, they're just not going to get out of the job what they need to get out of it. So they may be very, very talented, but leadership is just as important, if not more important, I think, than the talent that you have. So, you know, it's important that Nate Hackett has stayed with Blake it's important that the Jaguars have stayed with Blake. And, you know, Blake had 88 yards in this game rushing, 87 uh, passing. And people were talking about how stupid and crazy this is, but you win a game however you need to win a game. It's only the fourth quarterback in history to win a playoff game with more rushing yards than passing yards. And... He did what he needed to do. He had 8.8 yards of carry. If, if they didn't have him in the backfield, because Leonard Fournette didn't have the best day, you know, this team gutted out a 10-3 to win. Nothing happened in the first 28 minutes of this game and counting. It wasn't until, I think, 153 before halftime that there was a field goal from Steven Hauschka, who used to play with the Seahawks, getting a field goal for the Bills. They go up 3 to nothing. And then thanks to Blake Bortles, run, Blake Bortles running 20 yards and then 12 yards, he got the team in field goal position with seven seconds before the half to uh, kick a field goal. And Josh Lambeau, who they replaced Josh Scobie with. And, you know, you look at the fact of, or pardon me, not Josh Scobie. They had Josh Scobie. Uh, years ago, I'm thinking. I'm thinking back to Josh Scobie's time and all the good work that he did. I mean, I saw him make a 62-yard field goal. Jason Myers got replaced in early on in the season by Josh Lambeau, who was just waiting for a job and waiting for an opportunity. They kind of had bounced around to a bunch of different teams. I think the Chargers and and the Bengals or whatnot. And Lambeau kicks a 44-yard field goal with two minutes before the break, and the game's tied 3-3, three to three, which is good. The Jaguars needed to match them before halftime. And then the Jags came out, and in the third quarter, they held on to the ball for 8 minutes and 52 seconds of, of the 15 minutes in the third quarter. So just like Atlanta, condensing the amount of time that the Rams were allowed to have the ball, same thing that happened with Buffalo. The Jacksonville offense held on to the ball for almost 9 of 15 minutes in the third quarter to make sure that Buffalo wasn't going to have a lot of opportunities. And then when Buffalo had the opportunities, they blew them. Jacksonville's defense and blunders by Buffalo coupled to put them in a position where 
they had four punts in the second half and then an interception. That was how their five possessions went in the second half. So to go back to my story, the Jaguars are moving on. If you were writing home about the Buffalo Bills at Jacksonville Jaguars' first half at Everbank Field in Jacksonville, there wouldn't have been much to write about. What you could say is that neither team topped 100 yards in passing or rushing in all 30 minutes of the first half. Buffalo ended the first two quarters with 82 yards passing and 66 yards rushing, while Jacksonville concluded the first half with 28 yards passing and 56 yards rushing, most of that coming from Blake Bortles. Almost all of those yards passing and rushing coming from Blake. LaShawn McCoy led all rushers for the Bills in the first half with 36 rushing yards, while Jaguars quarterback Blake Bortles was one yard shy of matching McCoy, ending the opening half with 35 yards to lead Jacksonville, which is worth noting. Down 3 to nothing, as I was saying, Bortles reached field goal range for the Jags on two very late runs in the first half that Josh Lambeau took advantage of. Both teams combined to go scoreless for the first 28 minutes and 7 seconds. There were nine punts in the first half cumulatively, with Jacksonville punting five times, Buffalo four. Jaguars had as many first downs in the first half as they had punts with five. On their first drive of the second half, the Jaguars had that six, had a 16-yard gain off of a pitch to running back Leonard Fournette, and then Bortles went right back to him for a pass that got him another first down on a 12-yard gain. Tight end Mercedes Lewis would catch a pass over the middle for a 16-yard game, gain to Buffalo's 29-yard line for yet another first down on the drive following a short run up the gut by Fournette. Bortles would survey the field and then take off on consecutive plays, grabbing a first down that ended inside the Bills' red zone after gaining a yard and then gaining 10 yards on the following rush. Fournette would try to rush up the middle on back-to-back plays, and Buffalo would stop him, would literally knock him back while he was trying to leap in the air. So Jaguars head coach Doug Marone elected to go for it on fourth down with a yard to go, which he did at times with Syracuse, and we remember some positive moments, you Syracuse fans. And because they got the Bills to respect the run, they they dropped back on the one-yard line of the Bills, and instead of handing the ball to Fournette again, they passed it over the middle to Ben Koyak, who got the touchdown. Koyak's score would give the Jaguars their first lead of the game 10-3, with 48 seconds remaining in the third quarter. 86 yards gained on 15 plays on that drive took away 8 minutes and 52 seconds, like I was saying. On the Jaguars' third possession in the second half, Bortles threw toward the Bills players in safety Colt Anderson, but it was not intercepted. During the ensuing Bills drive, Taylor would find tight end Charles Clay on a big-time play by the sideline, but after review, the officiating crew deemed that Clay was had stepped out of bounds before catching the ball and did not reestablish himself inbounds before he caught the pass. Linebacker Miles Jack would sack Tyrod Taylor on the next play to force a punt with 5.50 left on the clock, sending the ball back to Jacksonville. And Bortles would take a low snap that went into the ground on the following drive and somehow turning in, turn it into a 19-yard run, but they wouldn't get anything done on that play. However, they did force Buffalo to punt the ball back and use all their timeouts before the two-minute warning. With 1.51 left in the game, the Bills began their final drive. Or their fifth, yeah, their fifth and final drive of the game. Jaguars defensive end Dante Fowler Jr. sacked Tyrod Taylor on third down, and Taylor went down on the field seemingly with a concussion, but was able to walk off the field 
and they brought in Nathan Peterman, who came in and, and ran for the first down. But after doing that, and after frightening some Jaguars fans saying, could this guy somehow do it, the Jaguars' Jalen Ramsey, their corner in his second season with the team, attacked the passing route and came up with an interception that he held on to, which was Nathan Peterman's, I believe, sixth of the season, to win the game 10-3 to and clinch it because the Bills had no more timeouts left. And the Bills also, because of two penalties, had 10-second runs off the clock, which affected the timing that they had and the amount of time that the Jaguars had to take a knee. The Bills would fail to score a single point in the second half and would not find the end zone in the entire 60 minutes thanks to the Jaguars' defense. Bortles concluded, like I said, with 88 rushing yards to 87 passing yards, becoming the fourth quarterback in NFL history to win a playoff game having more rushing than passing yards. Jaguars 6-0 at home at Everbank Field after starting 0-2 this season, and will head to Pittsburgh to meet the second-seeded Steelers in the AFC Divisional Round on Sunday, January 14th at 1.05 p.m. Eastern Time, exactly seven days from their victory that they just had in this game. And with that being said, the Jacksonville Jaguars are no strangers to going to Pittsburgh this season. They went there and defeated Pittsburgh earlier on in the year, 30-9, and allegedly Ben Roethlisberger said he wanted the Jaguars. He wants redemption. So what do people always say? Be careful what you ask for. Ben Roethlisberger threw five interceptions and no touchdowns in that game, and although I don't expect him to be anywhere near as bad in this one, again, be careful what you wish for. As Jacksonville moves forward in this one, going up against the Steelers, And, you know, for me, I'm going to have a lot to say about the Jaguars this week and about my experience, but I'm not just going to be the only one having a lot to say. I will be joined this week on the show by numerous Jacksonville Jaguars players, including left tackle Cam Robinson. I will also be joined by tight end Mercedes Lewis. I will be joined by wide receivers Keelan Cole and Jadon Mickens. You will also hear from running back Leonard Fournette in his one-on-one conversation with me. You will hear from Jaguars kicker Josh Lambeau. And you will hear from, you know, defensively for the Jacksonville Jaguars. I ha- you'll hear from defensive end Dwayne Smoot in my conversation with him from the Jacksonville Jaguars. And, you know, I mean, this season, you've heard from Calais Campbell on the show, Malik Jackson, Paul Puzlesny, uh Jalen Ramsey, or Paul Puzlesny was last year, pardon me, Jalen Ramsey, B- Barry Church, A.J. Boye. You've also heard from Dante Fowler Jr. You've heard from Brad Nortman, their kicker. Uh, you'll hear from Corey Grant as well on special teams again. Um, you've heard from Alan Hearns this year. You've heard from Marquise Lee, and the list goes on and on and on of players that have been brought to you on the prowl on Wake Up Call with Dan Satora. Once again, coming up this week, Cam Robinson, Mercedes Lewis, Keelan Cole, Jadon Mickens, Leonard Fournette, Josh Lambeau, Corey Grant, and Dwayne Smoot will all join the broadcast, all in one-on-one conversations with me in the locker room after the game. To be where I am right now, and to be able to talk about the Jaguars in the playoffs and winning a playoff game 
there is some vindication to what I've been saying over the last three or four years and seeing this stuff and saying, you know, people, you can't see it. You're refusing to see it because it's not wins and losses. But the Jacksonville Jaguars have been slowly but steadily building young talent, building through the draft, building in free agency, building in trades, building in coaches. Think about everything they did. They locked up Doug Marone and Nate Hackett two years before they hired them as the as the head coach and the offensive coordinator, respectively. They kept defensive coordinator Todd Wash after seeing what he had done with the defense last season, where I, st- I feel like they flew under the radar. They brought back Tom Coughlin as the executive VP of the team. They brought in Calais Campbell from the Cardinals. They brought in Malik Jackson after winning a Super Bowl with the Broncos. They brought in A.J. Boye from the Houston Texans, Barry Church from the Dallas Cowboys, Marcel Darius from the Buffalo Bills. They went and got Jadon Mickens and believed that he had something to offer. They brought on Keelan, Keelan Cole. They drafted, over the last few years, Blake Bortles and Marquise Lee and Allen Robinson, who's been injured this year, and Leonard Fournette and Cam Robinson. And the list goes on and on of the guys that they brought in to this team. You know, Dante Fowler Jr., they stayed the course when people didn't believe. And one of those people was not me. And I'm proud to say that I'm on a very short list that can sit here this morning and talk about a team that has worked so hard and so diligently to get to where they are today. And I know that you Buffalo Bills fans in Central New York and Upstate New York are sad, and I know you're upset. But please understand that there's some changes that will be made with the Bills. I don't know if Tyrod Taylor is going to be the quarterback. I don't know if the Bills don't call the Cleveland Browns and say, you got the first pick and the fourth pick, let's make a trade. I think that the receivers in Buffalo are better than how they look this season, and I think that that has to do with the quarterback and maybe the scheming. I'm not sold on Sean McDermott as the head coach yet, but Zay Jones, who's the leading all-time receiver in receiving yards in NCAA history. He didn't look like himself this year out of East Carolina. And I think that I think that they have a lot of talent. And bringing in Kelvin Benjamin was great, but obviously Carolina, when they parted with their number one, people said why. And, I mean, obviously they must have known that Kelvin was not healthy because Kelvin hasn't been healthy. But you have LaShawn McCoy... You know, you got to build up your defense and you got to find a quarterback. I don't feel like the relationship, and I don't know this firsthand, but I don't feel like the relationship with Tyrod Taylor and the Bills organization is good. So I don't think the Bills are out of it. I think after everything that they went through and all the mistakes they made this season, to still get to the playoffs was huge. And if they had better pieces and better communication and better overall common mission, then. I can see them going back to the playoffs, maybe not next year, but I think that there's something to be said about what they've done. With Jacksonville, I feel, I, I literally come to you this morning and I feel totally vindicated. And, you know, I do my research. I don't come on the show and say Jacksonville's going to be good in a few years because of da-da-da-da-da and it's all BS. Nor do I say that you know, a team like Atlanta, even though I didn't pick them, that they were incapable of winning. Because Atlanta 
snuck into the playoffs. You got to watch out for teams like Atlanta and Tennessee that sneak in. So there's a lot to be said about what's to come and about what the bracket looks like now with Tennessee playing New England on Saturday and Atlanta playing Philadelphia. That's a number one New England versus a number five Tennessee, number one Philly versus a number six Atlanta, and then number two Pittsburgh takes on number three Jacksonville in Pittsburgh, and I will be on site at that game Sunday, January 14th at 1.05 p.m. Eastern time. And then Minnesota, the number two seed, takes on New Orleans, the number four seed, in a game that I think is going to be a great game, January 14th at 4.40 p.m. Eastern time. So there's a lot to be said about what's to come, and Tennessee wasn't in the playoffs last year, nor was Jacksonville. And, I mean, you look at how good Minnesota is, how good Philadelphia is. I mean, these playoffs have really turned out to be something amazing. And everything outside of New England, to me, would be a fresh face, even with Pittsburgh, because, you know, of what they're doing. And people thought that Ben Roethlisberger was going to retire this year and that he had nothing left. So, you know, I think that we are, we're, we're definitely ready and poised to have a really, really awesome and exciting continuation of the NFL playoffs in the AFC and NFC divisional rounds as we move forward with what we have left. With eight teams remaining, we will have a Final Four, and I think that Jacksonville very well can be a part of that. I think if they play the way that they played, they have the film on Pittsburgh. They know what it feels like to go up there. They know what it feels like to play them and win. So they've already done it, which can help you boost your confidence as you move forward and try to do it again. So a big shout-out to the Jaguars, to their organization, their front office, and to them allowing me the opportunity to cover them for the last nine years on location and to cover my first-ever NFL playoff game. I am indebted to... Uh, to God, and I want to thank my G-Mama for everything that she has been doing, and uh, I want to thank God that he got me down here. You know, it's been a long road coming, and I got <laughs> I got so much farther to go. There are miles to go before I sleep and promises to keep. Have a blessed, great day. And I will see you tomorrow for trivia for the first time ever at Sammy Malone's at 6 p.m. And every Tuesday at 6. And I'll see you Thursday at Muddy Waters for game show night. First ever game show night as far as I've ever known in central and upstate New York. We'll see you this Thursday at 7 and every Thursday at 7 p.m. at Muddy Waters. They're both in Oswego, both on 2 Oswego Street. And Sammy Malone's is on the second level. Muddy Waters is on the first level. So we'll see you there. And thank you so much. And God bless I can't wait to share these interviews with you and so much more. I, I, I got a lot to say, and I'll be saying it this week. So thank you. Shout out to all the Jaguars and Bills fans that showed up and made it a phenomenal atmosphere. Go to Wake Up Call DT on Facebook. Go to at Call DT on Twitter. Go to at Wake Up Call underscore DT on Instagram and share in the fun and festivities. Read my story about the Jaguars moving on. See all the videos that I took, and there's so much to come. As we move forward here this week, as the Jacksonville Jaguars, 10-6 and after being 3-13, and get to the playoffs for the first time in a decade, win a playoff game, and move themselves into the, into the divisional round and a trip to Pittsburgh. God bless you all. Have a great day. And remember, believe in yourself. Believe in your dreams. Get your mind and your heart to agree with one another. 
and then give it up to God and just run as fast as you possibly can. Walk when you need to. Crawl when you need to. And understand that no matter what you're doing, do it for God. Do it for the good. Do it for positivity. And do it because you love yourself. And I promise you that if you chase your dreams and you follow your dreams and you do everything you can, you will, you will reach and meet and surpass everything that you desire. So thank you to God for my journey yesterday. That is a piece of a very long journey and a very long time coming. God bless. I'll talk with you soon.